0: Who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where in a few minutes we're going to tell you a story that a lot of people did not know happened over the weekend, but it's an important story about the political potential, politicalization of what has been a mostly political-free government broadcasting system. We're gonna tell the story of the termination of several uh, public broadcasters, including Steve Yates, the head of Radio Free Asia, the important taxpayer-funded nonprofit Radio station that targets China and the and uh, the uh, the Asia Peninsula Asia uh, realm for news that uh, they uh, uh, people in that region otherwise would not get such an important story. He was terminated over the weekend, uh, even though he had a contract. Even though normally these jobs don't change hands when a president uh, changes position. Obviously, we went from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, but normally these positions stay. Uh, As uh, through the ends of their contract, but not this time. Pretty cogent story that's fallen below the radar and one of many signs of how much uh, change the Joe Biden administration is bringing to Washington and the world. Important stuff. So we're going to have an exclusive interview with Steve Yates. It's the first time he's talked about his termination. I uh, hope you uh, look forward to that. Now, uh, before we go to our commercial break, I want to mention an important story uh, that broke this morning on Just the News under my byline. Uh, it is the latest declassified document. And quite frankly, I've, having gone through most of the documents now, I think it's one of the most important documents that President Trump declassified. What is it? Well, it's the transcript of Carter Page's interactions with the FBI informant, Stefan Halper, uh, the Cambridge academic, uh, back in October of 2016, four days before. The first FISA was approved by the FISA court targeting Carter Page. And in that document, in that transcript, in that intercept, uh, Stefan Halper is wearing a wire embedded by the FBI. He's controlled by the FBI. He's working for the FBI. He wears a wire. And in the conversation, he knocks down all of the key tenants of the allegations that the FBI had opened up on him. He denies knowing Igor Dovechkin and Igor Session, two Russians that were sanctioned and who Christopher Steele alleged, it turns out falsely, were meeting uh, with Carter Page to hijack the election. He knocks down another Steele allegation, another predicate of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation that he had played a role, he, Carter Page, had played a role in changing the RNC's official uh, platform to make it more friendly to Russia. Uh, Carter Page makes it clear that he kept arm's length away from that. Um, and then there are many other things that he knocks down. These are significant. Why? Because they're exculpatory information, they're evidence of innocence. They were kept from the um, FISA court and, quite frankly, for some time from Congress. A major omission. Uh, The FBI knew that this evidence existed. They knew it undercut the uh, claims in the FISA warrant application. It undercut the Christopher Steele dossier. And yet they proceeded, anyways, on October 21st, 2016, four days after Carter Page met October 17th, 2016, with uh, Stefan Halper. All of the allegations were crumbling. And what's important is that when the FBI went into this plan, it had an operational plan for Stefan Halper to target Carter Page. And the plan called for if, in fact, <clears throat> the intercepts with Stefan Halper, if Halper couldn't elicit incriminating information or if he got outright denials, the FBI was going to peel off a of Carter Page and move on to other targets. The appropriate thing to do. If you can't find the dirt, if you don't, if you can't find the evidence of, um, Wrongdoing, then why should he keep focused on the man and violate his civil liberties? But they didn't do that. After Carter Page knocked down all of the core allegations, didn't buy on anything that Stefan Halper was trying to lead him to talk about, uh, the FBI went ahead with the FISA warrant anyways. And why is that important? Because it was the second red flag that what they were doing was wrong, that what the case that they were building was misguided, that Christopher Steele's, intelligence was full of bunk. What was the first red flag? Well, we now know from the declassified documents late last year that the CIA, as early as August 2016, so two months before this intercept, told the FBI that Carter Page was one of their controlled assets, a cooperating CIA asset on matters related to Russia from 2008 to 2013. So they knew Carter Page was working on the good side. Of Russia, meaning for the CIA, for the United States, and then they knew that all of the Steele allegations were knocked down in an unwitting conversation where Carter Page is meeting unwittingly with an FBI informant named Stefan Halper, and he denies all of the allegations against him and provides plausible explanation. Uh, Stefan Halper is very good as as an informer. He makes several efforts at trying to trick up, or trip, or trick up Carter Page into acknowledging that he might have had contacts or new people. But uh, Page remains steadfast, and he knocks down. Those two things are enormous, and they are prima facie proof that the FBI proceeded with a false FISA application, a false investigation, one that intruded on Carter Page's civil liberties for an entire year, Not, not three months, not one month, not one week, one whole year, the FISA court wrongly as it turns out gave permission for the FBI to spy on Carter Page unaware of all of this exculpatory contradictory undercutting information that the FBI was withholding if there ever was evidence that the FBI's plot to deceive the court was intentional criminal a conspiracy this transcript coupled with the CIA's august warning makes the most compelling case and here's the best part you don't have to take my word for it you go to the website justinnews.com go there click on my story go to the dig in button you can read these declassified documents yourself no hiding no sneaking no trust me i'm a journalist like the new york times often does this story is documented you can read it will inform me you. you can make up your own mind we're not going to try to indoctrinate you so go check out these documents they're explosive they're important they're meaningful and of course uh, they are relevant to Carter Page's litigation. He's now suing the U.S. government for his civil liberties violations. And this evidence, I think, which he didn't have until today, until we broke the story, uh, is pretty strong. Now, why do I think that? Well, I interviewed, as part of the story, and you'll see it in there, I interviewed Kevin Brock, the former assistant uh, director of FBI for intelligence. Uh, he is a very respected man on all sides of the political aisle because he's a career guy he just did his job and he's a guy who under robert muller's tenure at fbi developed the modern day rules for uh handling confidential human sources like christopher steele like stefan halper and he says i gave him the transcript review this transcript tell me is there anything in here that would sustain probable cause for a fisa warrant or for the investi- any investigation of carter page Uh, And what would you have done, what would you have done if this transcript came to you while you were considering a FISA application for Carter Page and Kevin Brock wasted no time? He said, 100%, we should have disclosed it to the FISA court. It never was, by the way. And two, I would have said, shut this down. This This is a nothing burger. Shut it down. Let's move on to something where there's nowhere to go. Three. This would not establish probable cause, he said, either for the FISA or for, quite frankly, any investigation of Carter Page on Russia illegal lobbying, Russia illegal influence. Now, that's an FBI man, a G-man, a respected one. Uh, back from an era when the FBI didn't cheat like it's been caught cheating in the Russia case. Uh, I think Kevin Brock's words ought to resonate in your mind today. I'm going to try to bring Kevin Brock on the show in the next couple of weeks. He's a sage, calm mind, a smart uh guy who believes that the FBI when it follows the rules does great work and by the way when the FBI does follow the rules it does do great work. Uh, This is an indictment, is not an indictment of the entire institution, it's an indictment on a small group of people who worked in headquarters in 16, 17, 18 under the leadership of James Comey and Andrew McCabe who hijacked the system, broke the rules, deceived the court and uh, one important thing when it comes to the FISA court. Ignorance. Ignorance is not a defense. The FISA court requires the FBI to proactively disclose things, and you can't claim I didn't know it. You're supposed to know it before you sign your name to it. James Comey signed his name to these FISAs. Rod Rosenstein signed his name to these FISAs. Andrew McCabe signed to FISA. They have some explaining to do. Blaming it on the downstream bureaucrats isn't good enough under the law, under the uh, trust that the FISA court gave the FBI and in, in which was abused. So you can check that out right now at justthenews.com. It's one of our big exclusives, one of our new declassified documents, thanks to President Trump. Read it, check it out, make up your own mind. Tell me what you think. We're well on our way to uh, being able to um, inform you. And We've got more declassified documents coming out every day. Uh, Rod Rosenstein wearing a wire. I think that might be tomorrow's topic. Let's see. Check back tomorrow. We'll let you know. All right. In a few seconds, our exclusive interview with Steve Aitz, the recently terminated head of Radio Free Asia. What a story he has to tell. He'll tell you what's at stake. It's more than just a job dispute between someone who had a contract and got fired anyways without any explanation of cause. It's about America's ability to message to the Asia Pacific Rim, to defend Taiwan, to educate Chinese uh, citizens about what they may not be hearing, what may be censored from them in their own country. Uh, big high stakes in in a story that hasn't gotten much attention, but I think deserves a lot more. You're going to get it right here at John Solomon reports and Just the News. Right after these commercial breaks. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest with a very compelling story, Stephen Yates. Let me introduce you to him because he's had an incredible career. Used to be a national security advisor, deputy national security advisor for uh, Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, He was Republican Party chairman in Idaho. He's done a lot of other great things in the service of our country. And back in December, he was installed under a contract to run Radio Free Asia, one of the most important government funded broadcasting outlets that our United States of America has. And he was only in the job a few weeks when Joe Biden's axe uh, fell. We want to welcome Steve to the show. Steve, welcome uh, here today.
1: Thank you very much, John. A pleasure to join you.
0: Uh, before we get started, because a lot of people know there are these government broadcasters, but they're not uh, really familiar with their mission. Could you talk a little bit about just how important Radio Free Asia is and what role it's supposed to play in the in the infrastructure of the United States government and in, in the world?
1: For sure. Uh, well, people could be forgiven in the United States not to be as familiar because especially for the, the Radio Free Asia Middle East Broadcast Network, their specific mandates are to be surrogate media in target countries overseas, where there is control over the media, unfree environments generally, and it's to push inconvenient troops into those markets that would be uh, broadly debated uh, and put pressure on authorities if they had a free press. Uh, And so the primary market of these these, uh, government-funded nonprofit organizations is to push media and content overseas. Uh, but uh, the Radio Free a uh, falls under the broad umbrella of the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Before that name, it was known as Broadcasting Board of Governors. Right. Uh, this, these are these are the, the, the sort of stepchildren of uh, efforts during the Cold War to tell freedom's message behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, and uh, they, there was some successes of that experience. Uh, there were government funded and government-run entities that were created, like Voice of America, where if you're there, you're actually an employee of the federal government. Uh, And uh, then there are these private entities that came later. Radio Free Asia came after the Cold War, uh, recognizing that after the Tiananmen Square massacre in China, uh, there were policymakers, Democrat and Republicans, that wondered what might have been different if there had been more of a free press to let the people of China know the truth of what their government was doing in that crackdown. Uh, and so there was bipartisan support uh, to, to grant a block of money to start up Radio Free Asia, as I say, to push content into these unfree markets. Uh, it has never been a politically appointed position. The organizations are not political. Uh, and as I say, their mission is really targeted overseas uh, and uh, really shouldn't be a controversy. Uh, as you mentioned in the in the intro, I've been through uh, presidential transitions previous to this one. Uh, it's incredibly unusual for a presidential transition to target appointees at levels lower than cabinet, sub cabinet, and sort of the the management levels right. of big named agencies. Uh, and uh, so to have this acting CEO of USAGM put installed. Uh, for day one, and then basically conduct a Sunday Bloody Sunday routine of trying to terminate everyone uh, who is in management across the line at these at these at these agencies is unprecedented, and it's also inappropriate given that these agencies have and and government grantees have never been a part of presidential transition before, uh, and so uh, many many questions arise about process, but substantively. I'm a lifelong anti-Chinese Communist Party activist. In, uh, in as a missionary, in government, in think tanks, in private sector, I've always been in work and in media, uh, pushing commentary that was critical of, of the Communist Party of China's role uh, in China and around the world. Uh, I think Secretary Pompeo did an amazing job of educating Americans on this subject, uh, and so I saw the sort of recent opportunity to shift lanes in my life, take a bit of a pay cut and go run what I thought was a, a fantastic organization with a great mission, I'd be happy to step out of the partisan limelight and, and, and try to work what I saw was a, a really vital mission for the American people and the allies around the world. Uh, but unfortunately, as you say, the partisan and, uh, and transition acts fell very quickly and so hence we have questions about whether the biden foreign policy and these and the role of these
0: agencies. so let me ask you a qu- question you had a contract right so you sign a contract it's usually for two years if i remember correctly is that right
1: yeah and yeah uh, these 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 nagging details of employment <laughs> agreements and contracts <laughs> that uh you know to anyone who's existed in the private sector you would you would feel bound to have to honor uh, but if you're a privileged appointee of a lawless administration you sort of push that aside and say, you know, good riddance to people you disagree with. But yes, uh, embedded in the grant agreement between the USAGM and Radio Free Asia was affirmation of the tenure of the appointed leadership of of this nonprofit that's independent of the government. Uh, It's also been consistent going back to practices in the Obama administration. So it's not like it was a recent springing of this idea by either President Trump or Michael Pack, is appointed CEO of right. USAGM, this is practice that's been there for for a long time. Uh, so yes, there should have been legal protection to guard against this kind of precipitous action uh, and, on the acting CEO's part.
0: And when um, uh, President Trump took over, he kept the radio free Asia. Pointy or, or uh, executive that was installed by contract until their contract expired. Right, they didn't force them out early or do anything. Right. So this right. is there,
1: there, there, that's right. Two principles at play there. Number one, President Trump did nominate a new CEO. Right. But in its infinite wisdom, the Senate thought to block his uh of confirmation for several years, and so he wasn't even installed until uh, June of last year. And that's and when which the is contract expired. Transition correct? time in an administration. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. So, uh, so this, this, uh, there, there were processes before that. President Trump basically left people in place as acting and otherwise for several years.
0: Yeah, that's an important point. But these have always been hands off from the political gloves, and yet it appears now right. for the first time we're seeing a more political sudden uh, shift. So, describe what happens on the day you talk about Bloody Sunday, and that that's exactly you and several others. In the various NGO uh, broadcasting world, uh, who had contracts, were all let go. Describe what happened, uh, particularly in your case.
1: Well, uh, so my case, uh, sort of similar to what Victoria Coast experienced with the Middle East Broadcast Network as well. Uh, we we you know we're at these nonprofits. We're we're managing our organizations. We're working on funding and other kinds of structural issues for the for the organization. Right. We knew that. Uh, the CEO of USAGM, Michael Pack, was a political appointee and he could be removed, even though he also was supposed to have a three-year tenure, uh, that uh, we found out on inauguration day itself uh, that his resignation was requested. And uh, then there was a, a very quick move to terminate the leadership at Voice of America and uh, the Cuba Broadcasting uh, Network. Uh, now, all three of those were government funded and operated entities. So for us in the independent side of things, we didn't know how far or how fast or whether there would be a move. And we believed that our contracts protected us, but we received no communication whatsoever from the transition team uh, or from the acting CEO once she was appointed. And so we sort of were waiting to to have what would be the normal collaboration phone call. Now, I had journalists, for Radio Free Asia, they're at risk in Hong Kong. And we were in the midst of negotiating special visas to see what needed to be done to ensure their safety if the authorities in Hong Kong were to clamp down on them. The others were working on journalists that were in difficult situations elsewhere. Sure. There was no consultation with us about that sacred mission. Uh, and uh, so basically, at the end of the day on Friday, uh, after hours, I received a PDF letter from the acting CEO Kay Lu Chow's assistant, uh, that basically had the uh, the headline termination, uh, and it had a very brief message in the PDF that said on January 20th, uh, President Joe Biden was inaugurated, which is actually irrelevant to USAGM and to Radio Free Asia, but nice to know, uh, and that he had appointed uh, Kay Lu Chow as acting CEO of USAGM. Again, noted but not necessarily relevant to my employment. Uh, and then she proceeded to have a quote of a 1994 statute that has been amended a few times as her sole authority to just appoint and uh, and dismiss the uh, le- le- broadcast heads of these grantee organizations. No further information given. Nothing in terms of uh, you know the usual human resources of. Of course, we'll give you back pay and we'll extend your benefits to cover a transition. Nothing, just complete. Yeah. That's it, uh, and and no reference to an employment ag- agreement, no reference to the uh, citing any real statute that gave her such authority. Uh, and it's really unusual. People wouldn't might not know, but it's extremely unusual for an acting head of a government agency to terminate contracts, right? Yeah. Who's supposed to have Senate confirmation used used to be the United States Senate cared about these things and they wanted only people who had been confirmed by them to engage in major financial arrangements or significant personnel changes. So stepped outside of several bounds. But that was the sum total of it. It was just here's a PDF from my assistant uh, and no real instruction. And that's that. Your agreements and legal protections don't exist.
0: Now there's the personal side of things. Obviously, you made a commitment. You came to Washington. You you uh, you you expected to be here for your two years of your contract, and that that's a terrible personal toll. But on the agency itself and on the mission, uh, what message does it send down to the career people below you, the the uh, people that are working in in the NGO? What does it send uh, say to them about their mission and about the fact that politics may have now entered into the equation in a way? Uh, that they previously felt insulated from.
1: Right. Well, I think there's two major areas that are uh, operational and then strategic of grave consequence to the people who work at Radio Free Asia. Uh, first, uh, the fact that as a, as an independent nonprofit, you engage in a grant application and agreement process that is between uh, legal entity and legal entity. It's not between Steve Yates the individual right. and whomever is the other counterpart. It's between legal entity and legal entity. The fact that that was completely brushed aside without consideration, discussion, or much less consent of the grantee organization sends a very chilling message to anyone about whether they can negotiate in good faith with this acting CEO or the leadership at USAGM General. Great point. And that's the operational yeah. challenge. The second one is that uh, many of the people who work in this in this organization, are journalists, and we all know that if we did uh, a random sampling of 100 journalists, uh, we're not going to find a majority of them that are conservative activists. Uh, and so, the the political at- leanings of a lot of people who work there might not have been what my political leanings were. I mean, it was an open uh, source fact that I'd been the chairman of a Republican Party and I sure. engaged in those kinds of activities, which is allowed. Uh, but they, they may not have shared my politics. But one thing that we agreed 100% on was the independence of the the nonprofit, and to try to push for much less interference in the operations of the organization. It's supposed to be a financial transaction between a, a non-government entity and the government right. to say we're gonna we're gonna do these things in exchange for this money. But what this CEO is doing is micromanaging personnel and processes in the in the nonprofit in a way that far exceeds what Michael Pack, as the previous CEO, ever did, and he was vilified for just allegations of doing so. Right. That's a chilling message about the future independence of journalists and operations at RFA that I'm sure will trouble them. Uh, and that and put aside my special interest as an individual there's been a lot of turmoil at radio free asia uh, that goes back a, a few years and this continued turmoil just is not healthy for the organization
0: when you uh, look out and you know one of the things that uh, beyond you know your experience you had this incredible qualification because you've studied china you're an expert on china and obviously china's a big target of the radio free asia broadcasting so that people can get truths that they're currently denied and Uh, Beijing and around um, uh, China. Um, What do you see? I want to take this beyond Radio Free uh, Asia for a second. What is the fundamental challenge for America with China right now? We're in a life and death struggle for supremacy with China. Um, What is the... The moment we face in that relationship with China, and how could radio free Asia change under a Joe Biden administration versus where it was as you were leading it in the last months of the Trump administration?
1: Well, John, I think that is the key question. And I I think it's relevant to what happened at RFA. But I, I have a hard time thinking of any strategic challenge more important to the United States now and in the future than the very significant muscular weaponization of information and technology that is currently deployed by the Communist Party of China. Its influence operations hit the U.S. hard in its financial institutions, educational institutions, religious organizations, our politics, our our media and entertainment. But it's also doing the same to Australians, Brits, Japanese allies, others. Uh, We've never seen anything like it. Uh, Mao, under his cultural revolution, was brutal and effective and a lot of those same tools were used, but now modern technology with trillions of dollars of support are weaponizing this in a way we've never seen. And so Radio Free Asia and other kinds of broadcasting uh, could be a very important tool to push the battle of information and ideas back into China so they're on defense and less able to be aggressive against us in our own territory. Uh, And that's a sort of vital, vital, security, and strategic consideration to have. The current uh, acting CEO of uh, USAGM is someone who comes from what we in the expert community would call the Deep Blue uh, Nationalist Party, which is the, the, the Nationalist Party in Taiwan that fled China after the Civil War. They're right. pro-China, pro-unification, uh, and they have been more pro-accommodation with the, with the Chinese Communist Party. Having someone with that background uh, at the helm of these organizations at a time of open politi- uh, political and economic warfare by China. Uh, the, you know, the the coronavirus is, is the physical manifestation, but the viruses that come by way of cyber and other ways are equally as damaging to us. It, it's just unthinkable right now to put someone like that in a meaningful management position.
0: And uh, when we look at the messaging, the sort of things that Radio Free Asia is able to inject into the uh, Pacific Rim, into China, into the area around there. The messages of support for Taiwan uh, and our other allies in the region. Um, have you noticed? And it's only been a few days. Has there been any change in the messaging or the the uh, news delivery uh, content uh, uh, since you since you were ousted?
1: Well, it's only been a few days for the new leadership to come in, so it may be too soon to see whether there's any uh, any significant content change. Uh, some of the most important broadcasts that the RFA does are in uh, rare languages like Uyghur. Right. Uh, so telling the oppression and genocide against uh, a, a Muslim population within China to people in China, but also to the broader Muslim world is a strategically significant thing. If that gets pulled back because of an administration's dictum to go, walk more slowly, or as Jen Saki said from the White House podium, taking strategic patience, as an yeah. approach to China. Or an unfortunate that, that term from the uh,
0: North Korea uh, uh, debates. Yeah, All right. right. Good point. Um, the so, people will look out and say, well, the Biden family has deep roots to China in the pocketbook because Hunter Biden and uh, James Biden had a 2017 deal with one company and they did an earlier uh, Hunter Biden did a deal in 2013 when people realize it. in you know, the first couple of days of this, um, uh, new administration that, that they were reaching this far down to impact the messaging arm of the United States to China. Um, the, does, there, does it create in the minds of half or more of Americans the a sense of a conflict of interest that China would love to see this agency stop its messaging and, oh, Joe Biden got rid of its leader? And does it make people wonder the connections to all of the Biden family's China ties?
1: I'm sure it would. Uh, you know, in fairness, I served in the Bush administration. I right. was a critic of the Communist Party then and had to struggle with people that were appointed in that administration that wanted a more accommodating approach. Sure. And there were plenty of Democrats that would accuse the Bush family of having financial dealings. And it was fair game then, That's right. according to them. So it should be fair game now to ask these exact same questions. Uh, and uh, so I think we have to look at this. China is not a normal country and ties there, business and otherwise, can't be seen as sort of like routine engagement between uh, some kind of French consortium and an American private sector business. Uh, This is a whole different kettle of fish. So I do think that there's an an ominous question out there about who's really in charge and what are their motives, Uh, because this was an unprecedented and irrational act. If you just take at face value, what even Secretary of State nominee Blinken said before the Senate, that there was large agreement with what the Trump administration approach to China had been. And the diagnosis of the problem was seen as bipartisan. It was just maybe some of the, the prescriptions about how to go after it were up for grabs. And so I think we've been sold a bill of goods about what this administration is about. And those dealings, I think, are the only hard evidence we have of we need to ask more questions and demand more accountability.
0: Now, there's been some tremendous progress in the last few months in highlighting uh, the Uyghur issue and its human right abuses. And then at the end of the Trump administration, there were all of these big criminal cases coming out of the Bar Justice Department of American academics who secretly had taken money from a Chinese scholars program and not declared it, even though they were in positions with governments such as NASA and other places. Um, you, you've been watching this. You're an expert. I'm sure uh, Radio Free Asia covered some of these important cases so that the Chinese people and those in the theater would understand the influence operations. But what does it say that we learned in a short period of time what was a 10 or 20-year influence program going on on our shores that was secret that needed to be unveiled by the Justice Department? Um, how good are China's influence operations in the United States compared to what we're trying to do uh, with our, our uh, RFA or other you know, outlets like that?
1: Right. Well, I think there are a lot of people that are very committed who try very hard, and I don't want to take anything away from their intent and their effort. However, China has an historic, world-class, extraordinarily well-funded information and cyber operations uh, and influence operations to degrade our institutions. It's been it's been ongoing for a long, long time. We have slumbered, somewhat like people would talk about with terrorism, that they declared war on us, and it's only after a major incident that we even wake up a little bit and begin to figure out how to respond. Uh, but what we're doing back to them to try to level the playing field, compete effectively, protect our own national interests, is almost like kindergarten cops. We, we're just doing the basics, trying to catch up. And even... The budgets that we assign to have some kind of a national cyber uh, strategy or to try to protect our institutions, academic, media, government, Uh, we're just really not serious about that yet. And uh, we've run into the face of political correctness. People try to refer to Chinese as an ethnicity. And so you can't do these things or you face all kinds of accusations. But in my view, the Chinese Communist Party is not an ethnicity. Uh, And it has been responsible for more mass murder and oppression than any organization in the history of mankind. And no people have suffered more from it than the Chinese people have. And so there's no more pro-ethnically Chinese position than to resist and push back into a box the influence of the Communist Party.
0: Yeah, such a good point, and really part of the charter of Radio Free Asia. Uh, I looked at some of the stories that uh, RFA was covering, and of course, there's important ones they covered the Uyghur. Uh, crisis and uh, the condemnation that is growing in the world. There's been so much silence on it for so long, but it really is a modern day genocide, as Secretary Pompeo declared towards the end of his tenure. Uh, obviously, covering a lot of the trade things and other things. But <clears throat> one story I wonder if you uh, how RFA would have covered it was the Eric Swalwell uh, allegations with the Chinese woman that he uh, was embedded in in and around him. Uh, it, does that sort of story also get covered by Radio Frey Asia?
1: Uh, It should, uh, in the sense that I think it says something very, very important about the Chinese information operations. One thing that this current episode uh, puts a chilling effect on is uh, the dependence that these organizations have on funding from Congress. Uh, And so, unfortunately, if we see a militant move by the party in power in Congress and the party in power in the administration trying to impose politics into the management of these organizations, then journalists are naturally going to pull punches about what to cover and how to cover it. Uh, and so I my concern is whether it's the long embedding of staff uh, on Senator Feinstein's staff that was well-publicized. Uh, there are Republicans that are compromised by this too, and I have no inhibition about exposing that alongside. It doesn't need to be partisan. Uh, but I do think that they're going to pull their punches in these government-funded outlets when they see that politics can burn them and maybe terminate them.
0: So now as you head forward, uh, the first question I'd have is where do we go next? Do you sue? Is that your next opportunity to bring this into the courts and highlight uh, what happened to you and to see if you can get it reversed or uh, at least um, adjudicated?
1: Yeah, I I am going to pursue every option I have uh, to seek – Uh, an honoring of the contract Uh, i can't think of anything more fundamental to our system uh, than the good faith of a contract Uh, and for the united states government without any kind of legal standing or even explanation or accommodation to just say this contract doesn't exist it's just not acceptable to me Uh, and so yes i'll seek the the full uh, promise that was given to me in the contract whether it it involves returning to Radio Free Asia, or otherwise, as they, I, I think that I was prepared and did in good faith uh, honor my contract. Uh, further, we're going to press the public messaging. Basically, there was a false narrative that was imposed upon uh, Michael Pack at USAGM and all of us. that Somehow, we had become Trump TV, and we were sort right. of manipulating content to make it pro-Trump. They never produced a single shred of evidence. On, on my particular tenure at the very least, and I don't think they have on others. Uh, but in fact, what they're doing now is you can see Voice of America reporting on itself and giving flattering coverage of the acting CEO's personnel moves. Uh, and that's just wildly outside of the mission of what these organizations are. So I think we have to, in addition to seeking recourse legally for me and for others, we've got to light a fire under our congressional representatives to say look these missions are now politicized and wildly out of whack and if you can't get some normal normalization of it taxpayer money has no business going into these functions and the sacred missions would really be more freely and effectively executed by way of private funding going forward
0: yeah, such a great, uh, such a great point to, to make. And um, uh, if folks if, if folks want to follow you, Steve, uh, how do they stay in touch with you on Twitter, Facebook? Do you have uh, a way to stay in touch with you and your work? Since you, beyond your your work at Radio Free Asia, you've been you've been an expert in this realm for quite some time.
1: Much appreciated. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter as long as that lasts at <laughs> Yates Comms. Y A T E S C O M M S. Uh, in the in the days ahead, as I, I land into a new groove, uh, by way of that Twitter Twitter feed and otherwise, I'll update people on affiliations, links, and other social media as we explore what survives the big tech crackdown.
0: Yeah, that's such a that's a big part of this uh, epic battle we're facing. It's not just the termination of contracts and the the uh, politicization of these NGOs that are funded by the government, but the larger crackdown on on speech in America feels an awful lot like Chinese crackdowns and a lot, an awful lot, not like the American way we're so used to. Well, Steve, we're so grateful for your time and for your service to your country. And we want to follow this story. We're going to be chronicling this and uh, hope to have you back on soon as your, as your lawsuit and other actions start to take root.
1: Anytime, John. Pleasure to join you. and Look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: Yeah, same here. All right, folks, we're going to come right back after this commercial break to wrap things up for the day. What a conversation with Steve Yates. A lot to think about, Radio Free Asia in China. All right, now to that commercial break. (music) Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out. Who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text just news to 989898 98 98 right now. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. All right, folks. That wraps up another edition of John Solomon reports. A lot to think about, and you know, I was listening to Steve Yates, and I began to realize that almost every aspect of the U.S. government that had brought, stayed above politics for so much of our history—the intelligence community, the FBI, the military, even even the nonprofit international broadcasting arms uh, uh, funded by the U.S. government, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia. There seems to be a sudden politicalization in in a way that I could not have imagined myself when I came to this town, Washington DC, 30 years ago this year. Uh, So much to think about, so much to realize uh, and be informed about so we can start to make good decisions, make new requests of our government leaders as the taxpayers and ultimate custodian of this great American government that we have. You know, in the declassified documents today, you see the politicalization, the hijacking of the FBI, the breaking of the rules, and in the firing of Steve Yates, you see a government-funded entity uh, basically violating the terms of a contract without explanation. And uh, we, the American people, ought to demand explanations and eventually accountability for all those who do things on our dime that don't follow the law, that don't follow the rules, that politicize what should not be politicized. Um, what a show we had. I wanna thank you for listening. I wanna thank Steve Yates for joining us. I wanna thank all the team here at Just the News have been working on these declassified documents. We're working day and night to get you the truth, to get you the specifics, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with more news. And later this week, we're gonna do something special. I just did a special event with Newt Gingrich and Jenna Ellis and uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired Alan West three very great minds, four uh, frontline pastors of churches uh, on a subject that's very close to my heart, faith under fire, religious liberty in America being infringed in the name of the pandemic, in the name of big government. Uh, These are important interviews because they're factual, uh, and we're going to do two days of that. Thursday and Friday this week, we're going to dedicate to the two panels. The first panel will be Newt Gingrich, Jenna Ellis and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. And on Friday, four extraordinary frontline ministers. You'll want to hear their stories. They're being fined for allowing their parishioners to be uh, ministered to. They're being shamed. They're being threatened. They're being infringed upon. Um, They're watching uh, city governments and state governments allowing hundreds of people to go to a Walmart but not to go to a church. Pretty important story. We want to illuminate the conversation with some big names, which I think we've managed to do. That'll be the Thursday, Friday editions of this podcast. I hope you enjoy them. Uh, I, I had a really enjoyable time with the passionate uh, conversation that we had on these panels. So that's our Thursday, Friday. Tomorrow, we'll have some more declassified documents to talk about. And um, hopefully, you will send you into the week with a lot, weekend with a lot to think about. All right, folks, until tomorrow, may God bless you. May God bless this great country of America. Have a great night. We'll be back tomorrow. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out.